On today's podcast, we're going to be talking with Lincoln Stoller, who is the author of The Learning Project. Lincoln has grown up with and been mentored by colleagues of men such as Frank Lloyd Wright and Albert Einstein, to name a few. He is a published NASA scientist and a mountaineer and currently has a therapy practice in British Columbia. His own education was an unusual one, and in this interview, he shares his journey, which has led him to become an unschooling father. We also talk about the difference between teaching and mentoring and finding opportunities to learn. So have a listen. If you have little ones listening, in the course of our conversation, Lincoln uses one S word and one H word. I just wanted to let you know that so that you can be advised. I didn't mark this podcast episode down as being explicit because it's not really explicit. And if I do that, it will mark all of our podcasts explicit. And really, they're not. So I didn't want to have that label put onto the Canada Homeschools podcast when it's not really necessary. So just be advised. But this is a really interesting conversation. So hope you'll have a listen. I should also add that as we were recording this interview, Lincoln was just recovering from a very bad case of COVID-19. And so he does have the sniffles and he has to take a breath once in a while because he was in the process of recovering from being very sick. Welcome to Canada Homeschools, the dose of inspiration and encouragement for Canadian homeschoolers. Canada Homeschools features interviews with homeschool group organizers, resource suppliers, and conversations with everyday homeschoolers just like you, all from a Canadian perspective. I'm your host, Rowan Atkinson. I'd like to thank you for joining me. Now let's get started. In 400 meters. In 100 meters. You have reached your destination. So, Lincoln, tell us about your family and your homeschooling journey. Um, I started thinking about alternative schooling in kindergarten. And I don't exactly know why, but something I didn't like. And somehow I heard about Summerhill. And I never thought it was realistic. Maybe it wasn't. But the truth was that people went to Summerhill from all over the world. I don't think I was ready to leave home at age six, but uh, I had the idea of being independent and all that schooling, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak for other people, but I, I found school to be a nightmare, uh, not necessarily a cruel nightmare, as some people found, but a, an incredibly boring one. I could never really get anyone to think at uh you know a, a level that i found interesting and most of my schoolmates were just you know doing mostly interested in nothing 
which was okay. Um, but I constantly pestered teachers for something interesting. And then with few exceptions had nothing interesting to offer. So by the time I was in high school, I was one of these funny sort of leftist uh, rebels who would carry around copy of uh, Dante, you know, in eighth grade and people would laugh at me and, and I would get back at them by actually reading it. Of course, I don't remember it, but you know, whatever. And, um, and I was interested in getting out of school as quickly as possible. So I took the initiative to take an extra course in high school every year. I don't know how that was even allowed, but, um, and I made some strange friends. Like I, I, I was not a jock, but I went out for the diving club and I kind of made friends with the sort of military sergeant um, gym teachers uh, simply because I think they appreciated that I had initiative, which is what it sort of takes to compete. But I didn't compete. But still, it was interesting. And I did get out of high school a year early and uh, went with great hopes to a very liberal college called Hampshire College in Massachusetts, which, oh, I don't know, maybe it fulfilled my expectations 30%, which would be a lot actually for a school to do. I think my expectations were too high. But the two things that shaped me, of course, this is very subjective, um, were that I got involved with mountaineering, mostly through these um, outdoor leadership schools. Though I didn't go to the schools myself, my friends did. And so I just sort of took the initiative and went climbing. And I think climbing is a great thing for anybody who has um, aspirations because you, you hit your limit. Um, then a lot of things, it's hard to hit your limit, you know, reading or research or writing, you can go on and on and produce lots of, lots of dreck, but in something that is uh, hard, Uh, when you hit your limit, you know it. Um, and it also introduced me to a lot of strange people. As you can imagine, extreme things attract extreme people. And some of them are very interesting and some of them are very crazy. So when you're a young person, to meet very crazy, highly accomplished people, it can affect you. And, and uh, we, we were going to talk later about the difference between teachers and mentors and there's kind of a third area. I haven't defined either of those two, but um, the accomplice who, who may know, who knows more than you. I've had several great accomplices, you know, people who've taken me on journeys that I, that changed me. Um, some of these were not responsible people, but they took me anyway. Um <laughs> You know, in the mountaineering, most of them are dead because they were too aggressive. I mean, you know, there's that, there's, uh, what's that story? They're old, old mountaineers and there are bold mountaineers, but they're no old, you know, that's true. No old, bold mountaineers. Right, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, more, more there than anything else. Um, 
I went to this liberal arts college that promoted independent study. And uh, so there was this little cadre of students that tried to work together and advance our knowledge. And it's funny because we were in physics. And so we always tended to fall into a classical education because it presents the material in such a neat and deceptively uh, rational way, which of course doesn't last historically when there's some scientific revolution, they throw out all those old textbooks. But, you know, we were learning quantum mechanics and so forth. And then I had the, I think my, personally, I'm getting to my own family, but personally, my most important learning experience, aside from mountaineering, which was tremendously empowering, you know, because you're working with real responsibility for yourself and others. Um, was when I wandered up to uh, the top floor of the astronomy department in Berkeley, California. And uh, this is a technique that I encourage everyone to do. And I know of almost no one who does it, which is to knock on the door of whomever you think the most of and ask them if there's anything they can do to help you. And uh, I would replace all school with, with, that, in, with, with that advice. So I walked up to the top of the building and knocked on the door of the guy who invented lasers. And he said, sure, I got a job. Here, you work for NASA. And I was, you know, what was I? I hadn't even graduated from undergraduate school. And I was working for NASA. And, uh, and he was... He was very, I don't really know. I can't call him a teacher because he never really had time for me. But he told me what I needed to do and where I could go to learn how to do it. And the fact that he was giving me this responsibility and he was paying me for it. And it was part of a group of uh, six postdocs studying the surface of Jupiter. I mean, you can't not do well unless you're just going to be a jerk and blow it, you know. So I spent all my time uh, working for him, learning this advanced stuff and actually doing it. Um, and and the, the odd thing is to, to, my, to my endless chagrin, it turns out that I had a, a sign error in one of my formulas, a minus okay. sign, where it should have been a plus sign. So he was not able to use my work as widely as he wanted, but he did publish it with my name on it and his name on it. And, um, and it, it enabled me to work with him and with the group and uh, work at a, at a really serious level, you know, where people would turn to you. I mean, this guy had a Nobel prize and he turned to me and say, what do you think? And for a 17 year old, that's, that's either going to crush you or it's going to, or it's going to shoot you right out the top. And um, I really loved that. That he was the most um, encouraging of all the academics I encountered. Uh, you know, I, I did have some experience with, in mountaineering with some very supportive people, but in in my academic work, this guy was the his name was Charlie Towns. Um, 
was uh, tremendously important. And I, so it was because of that and a few other people, although maybe he was the most important, that I started to write this first book called The Learning Project, which was to interview the greatest people I could find and ask them, what's learning about? Why do you do it? And what, where does it get you? And I had the insight then that it's not something that old people necessarily know the most about. So I took the project, which is a book, and divided it into asking that question to young people in high school age and middle-aged people who were, you know, like middle-aged people are, busy and uh, lots of irons in the fire. And then elders who often... who often had their path fairly well chiseled. And um, I went back and I talked to Charlie Towns and he was almost surprised to hear that he was an important influence to me because I think that's how he worked with everybody. You know, that's how he worked. He sounds like a humble man. He sounds like he just uh, wanted to get to the bottom of things and he wasn't just trying to protect a position or something like that. Well, sometimes these people are difficult to figure out. I mean, you could be right. But I think he could see above that even he could see even above that because he knew who I was. And he knew he knew what I could do with the opportunity he gave me. Um, I guess you might call some of these people really effective managers. I mean, so effective that they can make things happen with almost no effort. Um, So he was one of those people. I can't claim to have that skill at this level. Um, Anyway, that project caused me to go knock on a lot of other doors. You know, I'd ask people, who's the most amazing person you know? And then I'd go run off and talk to them. And some of them were quite, uh, you know, forthcoming. And also... For me, and this gets down to homeschooling, I should apologize. I just had COVID two weeks ago. So I just got off oxygen. My voice is a little short. Um, I personally find the stories of young people the most inspiring, even though they tend to, you know, um, be very scattered go in many directions, um, be full of alternatives and, and, and then sometimes bad behavior by anybody's standard. Um, I find young people, I mean, it's hard to say what, I'd like to say inspiring, but I don't want to do what they're doing. I'm, I'm 65. I'm through that. Um, I don't want to go back to there. I was just, you know, a vandal and a shoplifter when I was a teenager. And that wasn't very successful. And I'm glad I got out of that. But um, I spoke to people who I felt were on their way up. And most of them were um, not, not usual schoolers. I can't say they were all homeschoolers because homeschooling is kind of vague anyhow. 
they were, you know, they'd travel around the world with their parents or um, one kid decided he was going to make a movie. So he dropped out of school and devoted himself to making a movie. And, um, and other kids, I guess you would call them dysfunctional in some way. I guess I was attracted to them because they were so interesting. But as I spoke to them, I could see that their lives were more than interesting. They were really complicated. Um, one of the guys I talked to was actually in his 30s now, but he was a graffiti artist in New York City as a kid. And so he spent his days being chased by the police and, uh, you know, running that's, through subway tunnels. That's exciting. Uh, not my experience. And it could have been uh, corrupting, but it wasn't for him. So, I mean, these, these are amazing stories. And I was trying to put together what it all meant, and I still am. And, uh, you know, it gets to, so it gets to the point of, I see different levels. There's, there's education where you think people need to learn something. And it may be true. And then there's teaching where you think you're going to tell them what they need to learn. I don't much like that just because it's, it's almost obsolete by definition. Um, it's not interactive. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm anti-book. Of course, I read too much. But I'm almost always frustrated with the books I read because they've, you know, they haven't thought of what I'm thinking about. So, I mean, that's one of the most important things is learning how to read quickly. And I don't think, I don't think many people learn how to do that. It's not easy because you have to really read between the lines and you have to jump out of things and into other things. It's like surfing. You're always trying to catch the edge of knowledge and it's a difficult way to read. Um, it sounds counterintuitive to me. It sounds like reading quickly, you're going to miss a lot of things. You are, but you're trying to skip to where the most insightful person is speaking. And so, you know, if you do this with scientific papers, you only read it to the point where you think this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And then you go to the references and figure out who he learned from. And um, I tried to do that. Actually, this gets to my mentoring project. I tried to do that once I realized you could do it in real time with real people. You could do it in the library. You could do it with research. But you could actually go and knock on the door of people. Um, you know, And if Albert Einstein were alive when I was, I would have knocked on his door. But since he wasn't, I knocked on uh, whoever was in his office now. And uh, that was another um, life-changing experience for me because I didn't know who the guy was in Einstein's office now, but I knocked on his door anyway. And he turned out to be one of the most humble, um, gracious um, people in physics I ever met. And uh, because I had knocked on his door on uh, the Christmas holidays, he spent the whole day with me. He spent the whole day encouraging me to uh, ask deep questions. And I didn't even know this guy, you know? And then he said, come back tomorrow and we'll talk some more. 
And, uh, you know, that was sort of the beginning of my physics career. And as I moved into physics, I realized how famous he was. And I would kind of bump into him in different universities. And um, he was always gracious and serious and, uh, and humble. In, in fact, I've encountered a number of people like him, and they all tend to be Hungarians. So I've actually uh, purchased a, a DNA kit to find out if, if I might be Hungarian. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. Um, uh, so, so that gets you into culture. And that's another interesting discussion because I, it's definitely true that Hungarians are very intellectual and very creative. Uh, I don't know that much about their government, which seems to be not particularly creative or enlightened, but that's another story. And um, uh, I'm not letting you ask questions, so I'm going to stop talking in a second. But I just wanted to finish the thought that if you knock on people's doors and pursue what's interesting to you with a flexible mind, um, taking opportunities, uh, the most wonderful things can happen. Far more wonderful than you could probably have planned yourself. So uh, the two other examples of this are my father decided to build a house in the Caribbean because part of his job took him there once. And I got to know the people in the village. You know, this is uh, uh, an English colony uh, populated by black ex-slaves in uh, a tropical environment. Couldn't have been further than the suburbs of New York City for me. And I ended up living with them. And it, I guess you'd say it was kind of transformative. Um, you know, I, I could go on for hours about how different those people are. But, you know, when I see them now, they say, when are you going to come back home? Which is the island, which I'm probably not, but maybe. And uh, then uh, in university, when I was in physics, a uh, girlfriend was in anthropology. And she did the very difficult work of getting permission to study a group of people that were out of contact with Westerners. And it took her almost a year just to get permission because they're not too open about seeing Westerners. They know sort of what happens when you let Westerners in. So because I was her boyfriend at the time and she finished a year's work of work getting permission to go in to visit them, I just sailed right in. And I spend a month living with them. And um, it was, you know, I'd have to say shocking to realize how, how present and sharp people are when they have to do everything themselves. Um, so it's kind of, kind of turned the world upside down, you know, because here I was a physics student you know, pursuing this lofty notion of knowledge meted out in small bits by the most famous to the students considered most worthy. And then I'm living in the jungle 
with people who depend on each other entirely, who have no teaching, no stores, no medicine, no nothing. And they're just regular people. But they're kind of more balanced, you know, because if they get out of balance, their whole community's out of balance. It depends on them. So it's kind of left me, I don't know, I've turned out to be rather open-minded on one hand and rather judgmental about some things on other hand. Well, that's very self-aware, I guess, if you can describe it that way. Uh, And you've taken all of this, you know, all this thinking about learning and these experiences of being mentored and uh and then you have your own children right and so you have to figure out how to facilitate their learning so well the first child born in 1998 a boy to uh a wife of mine who was an anthropologist went straight into Sudbury school which is a derivative of Summerhill a free classroom environment. Um, Summerhill's, you know, particular to its personalities. And Sudbury has a little more variety depending on the school you go to. But it's still based on the idea that uh, kids learn by doing what they want, when they want it, with whom they want. And that the uh, the container within which the learning happens has to be defined by the kids, which means they make the rules and um, they deal with those who choose to break the rules. So if people don't know Sudbury, what seems to be most definitive about it for me is that every student at every age, and it goes from kindergarten through high school, has to sit on the judicial board and hear the cases that the other students bring against each other, decide them and adjudicate the consequences. Uh, And so the the little kids will, you know, it's their favorite complaint is being forced to sit for two hours or three hours, listening to these people make their cases and then having to decide. And, um, you know, the older kids can, can tolerate it a little better, but, um, I don't know. They also didn't want adults around. I don't think Summerhill did either. In other words, either you're part of the community or you don't have a say. So uh, if you wanted to be more involved, then you could be. But just because you're a parent didn't mean you could say what your kids should do at school. And they discouraged you from telling your kids what they should do out of school also as sort of an extension. They didn't want parents saying, oh, you're not learning enough in school, so do this which is fair. Um, So the kids really had their own environment. This is Sudbury. And most kids would would wake their parents up at the crack of dawn to get them to the school as soon as possible and stay there as late as possible. It was a a community. And it it would be a bit of a stretch to call it a school, but, you know, there was some structure. And... um, Kids loved it, and it even was inclusive of uh, learning disabled kids because there wasn't a particular structure. 
it, it formed itself around whatever the community was. Um, I mean, it's interesting. It, it didn't always work. And I, as a parent, didn't always know when it didn't work. Um, and so when my son finally graduated from Sudbury, which didn't require too much um, from him uh, to, you know, fulfill the requirements of graduation, you know, he kind of poked his head into the outside world and turned to his parents and said, what the hell did you do to me? You know, I'm not prepared for anything that's available. Um, And, you know, we just kind of shrugged because we thought he had developed lots of valuable skills, Um, community, uh, collective action, uh, focus, discernment, um, none of which would be easy to explain. And um, few things of which would be appreciated by the outside world. Sudbury students are known to be annoying to uh, standard educators because they start asking questions and um, they don't accept the the kind of answers that they're given. I'm not sure my son was one of those, but if I had gone to Sudbury, and I essentially did by by rejecting everything that was given to me, I would be and was pretty annoying as a young person. So that kid seemed to make a perfect transition, perfect, or at least smooth into university. Um, I didn't, but he did. So in spite of having a completely non-traditional education, he studied all these um, high school equivalency books, took the tests, college entrance exams, um, and has for the last four years been a stellar college student with all kinds of grants and support and endorsements. And uh, uh, the most definitive thing I have to say is that I moved to the West Coast. I'm now in BC and he's still in New York and I, and I miss him. But to tell you the truth, I was never that involved with his education because as Sudbury School is, they didn't want me involved in his education unless... I, I don't know. I, maybe I was too self-involved. But the point is that if you're not in the Sudbury community, you really don't have a vote. Um, not only that, you don't even, there's no newspaper. You don't get to know what's going on. Because a lot of schools that I've been involved with, uh, independent schools, and maybe you know this too, find that the parents can be the biggest problem. Um, but, uh, and we, we had another school we, we uh, created in which the parents were absolutely the biggest problem. Kids had no problem, but the parents seemed to need to go to war, which they did. I mean, uh, I think there are some things to go to war about if if uh, you have the vote of choosing what school your children go to. But I would say the biggest problem I've seen um, in my experience is parents pushing children to pursue a career that they're not necessarily wired for. Um, like wanting them to be doctors and putting all that pressure on them when the kid doesn't necessarily want to even do that, but they have that pressure. That's, that's the biggest problem I've seen in my experience, but my experience is probably somewhat limited. Well, mine certainly is too, but to add to that, the problem in our, what was uh, kindergarten was that the parents of the girls 
didn't like the fact that the boys weaponized all their toys. Sticks turned into swords, you know, and guns. So they, and they didn't wanted... have sons then. <laughs> what? They didn't have sons also. They didn't have sons. So there turned to be a strange battle between the parents who wanted to outlaw sticks. And the kids didn't care. But the parents nearly killed each other as it divided into two. It was very strange. But as I've become a psychologist now, effectively, I see that strange is sort of normal for human beings. So I can uh, argue with you there. Yeah, you know. So then uh, when you had your second son. My second son um, was a situation of complexity. I have to avoid because it's sort of bottomless complexity. But what it came down to was that I got permission to immigrate to Canada at the same time that his mother had decided she didn't want to live with me. So that's complicated. uh, I won't even tell you the complicated things, but I'll tell you the resolution, which was that I basically bought her into Canada and said, you know, I'll pay for you for three years. Everything just come. So she did. So here we are. Uh, just to tell you how weird this is. So she she was going to come with another man, but he didn't cut, quite make the cut. So she came without him. And then she found a guy on the internet from Georgia and she married him. But now she's living in my house in the next room. And he's in Georgia. And my son's perfectly happy because he's got both his parents and we never fight because there's nothing left to fight about. You know, it's all like we went to court. We did all this stuff. It's like finished. I know what I get. It's not what I want. She may feel the same, but we save money and uh, we take care of our kid and he's really happy. So as I mentioned, we tried alternative schooling and it's actually, um, I mean, Canadians should know. I don't know if they should know, but it's interesting to know that standard education in Canada seems a little more enlightened than in the U.S. I don't know if that's regional or national, but some interesting national Canadian educational initiatives um, exist. And uh, I remember hearing from European educators when they were asked, where, what, where do you get these good ideas? And they say, we get them from the U.S. They come up with all these great ideas, but they don't use any of them. But we do. And so maybe, you know, there are, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to know that a young person will operate the best in the context of something that fascinates them, interests them, or encourages them. I mean, if you don't get that, you need parenting education. Um, So to some degree, we found alternative education in Canada um, to be good, but not good enough for me. I mean, there was still structure and still what you're supposed to know and how you're supposed to behave and how the day is supposed to be broken up and um, all sorts of things that to me sound very... um, industrial and 
uncreative to, to, to give them the best words I can. Well, a lot of those, a lot of sort of the Western education model, is that not historically, does that not come from the industrialization and preparing people to be good factory workers and soldiers? Sure. But you'd think that... Like the models and the paradigms are based on that. Why hasn't it evolved? That's sort of a mystery to me. I mean, if you can create a school and you can, why can't you simply evolve it? I mean, there are schools, right? You know, like the Eight Shields program and uh, Dan Brown's, you know, and the outdoor self-discovery schools. And and in Canada, they have made some inroads. Uh, I had a traditional school principal say, great, take your son out of school every Thursday to go in the woods with this program. And I thought that was wonderful. And I thought that was enlightened. But none of the other kids got to go to the nature program on Thursdays. Just me and my kid. Um, so, so then you decided to make it more than just Thursdays. Exactly. And, and so now it's a different problem. Because now I have to do it. And now we sort of we get to the nuts and bolts of, of homeschooling. And uh, my attitude is that whatever I call schooling, and I, I hesitate to call it schooling, but I'll take that responsibility because, you know, I'm the heavy handed one with, with the agenda. Um, whatever it is that I say it should be, it has to ride on his acceptance. I mean, I I don't, homeschooling for me is not something my kid has to do. It's a request that I have to um, demonstrate. And for the most part, he, he humors me. So, um, you know, there are these good web channels that have lots of documentaries. One is called Nebula and the other is called Curiosity Stream. And they're very cheap. And uh, I try to get him to watch those with me. And um, it's funny. I learn probably more than he does because I have context and I have uh, questions and so forth. But he humors me and he'll watch them. You know, maybe we'll chop it into 15-minute sections. And if I was more on point... I would add my own stories because those he'll listen to much more, uh, much more uh, with less resistance than some, you know, person who's pre-recorded their story. Um, so that's what I try to do most of the day. Well, this is this is actually important, I think. Uh, he's attracted by computer games. Uh, most kids are. The uh, the saving grace, as far as I'm concerned, because most of these computer games are not very interesting. They're repetitive and, you know, I mean, how much hand-eye coordination do you actually need? Um, but there's a application called Discord, and there may be others, where 
kids can talk and see each other in real time while they're playing their video games. And so it becomes a positive social environment. And, and, you know, I hear my son, my son is a little odd. I must say he doesn't like foul language. He doesn't like, uh, Mine doesn't either. It doesn't like anything like that's not appropriate. And he'll tell his friends to stop swearing. And, uh, I have nothing to say about that. I, I just listen in amazement to somebody who's, you know, like I said, when I was, I was a vandal and a, you know, miscreant. So I'm just watching him. Um, anyway, in between his day of uh, eight hours of video games and socializing, I try to fit in some of this material that I call educational and he calls generally boring, which I, I, I think I understand because he doesn't have the context. You know, he's not worried about global warming or pollution or capitalism or the banking system, all of which is intertwined and none of which is all that obvious uh, or easily simplified. Um, so uh, I try to weave that in. That That turns out to be what homeschooling is. Him having fun all the time and tolerating what I call educational as a kind of way to be with his father. And on top of that, we had like going for walks outside and stuff like that. Yeah, I know I'm thinking about reading and writing. There is, there is some educational component to that for sure, but that's reading can be the key to unlock all of the interests, right? So it's important to get that in there. Well, I have done that. I think you have to sneak it in. That's been my experience. Um, I started by reading him books that I, that we both found were interesting, but they tended to be hard for him to read, you know, because they had some complexity. It made it easier. Say what? The best books do. Yeah. I mean, I could read it to him because I could kind of explain it and I could uh, clarify it. But for him to read those books, it was too much for him. So I got him, my my approach, uh, I got him this like 16 volume set called How to Train Your Dragon, which is a pretty well-known series. And I find it Un, um, completely boring to me. I, I don't even see that there's a plot to it, but he reads it and, and he sees it and he follows it. And every day he'll sit down and he'll read to me um, and I'll like fall asleep immediately. Cause I, it's like of no interest, but you know, and, and I think that's really, if I was a professional teacher, no, if I was a good professional teacher, I would understand that, but I don't understand it. There's something about the material and the level that, that it's, it's appropriate for him. And so he reads it and because they're like 16 volumes, it's take him a long time. Um, so, and he reads very well, very well. And then for writing, I am not really able to get him to write much. And, you know, there's a difference between young girls and young boys with young girls tending to 
I think, right a year or two earlier. So, I mean, whatever. But I did get him interested in cursive. So, um, and cursive is kind of fun. I mean, you know, it looks kind of cute and and uh, nobody really cares too much whether your Fs look like Bs. So I've been giving him the assignment of writing anything, a paragraph, and he'll complain for a while, but if I bug him enough, he'll do it. And, um, and, and like you're saying, I'm just kind of waiting for uh, things to catch up. I remember in, in the book I wrote on learning, um, many people will know John Gatto. Yes. And um, so I asked John, who should I talk to? Because I didn't really want to talk to him because we know what he has to say. And uh, I want to talk to somebody who I didn't know what he had to say. So he told me to go talk to Phyllis Schlafly, who was famous for her anti-equal rights work. And uh, a kind of an odd bird, very Midwestern, very headstrong, very political, uh, outspoken. And so I, as one of the 30 people I interviewed, I interviewed her. And I sold her. I told her at one point, and, and I don't really understand her. I, I told her at one point, I read to my kids every day. And she said, why do you read to them? If they're interested, why don't they read? And I really couldn't answer that. And I still can't answer that. But um, I kind of thought she was wrong because reading to my kids has been a social bonding experience. You know, we read these fantasy stories and I'm interested and he's interested and we talk about it. And no, he doesn't learn how to read any better because I'm the one doing the reading. Um, well, his vocabulary is growing, even if he, I guess, he yeah. can't really uh, decode it when he's reading. He, his brain is actually developing vocabulary, so there is actual English value in that. But you um, know, I think there's more. You know, I think you get right down to it. Homeschooling is uh, family bonding, family. Uh, is a family thing. Um, you know, one of the big complaints I have about my own natal family is that they weren't involved in my childhood much at all. My mother was completely absent. And my father did a great thing at the time I was around 11, where he took me as an assistant on his photo jobs. And, you know, it was serious work. It was something I had I could do since all I was doing was dragging around flashbulbs. Um, but it gave me a new perspective of him as a person, which was very important. Because then I could understand why he never paid me atten any attention. It wasn't so much of an issue. I could see what he was doing. And I could see he would have no interest in blowing up plastic models with firecrackers, which was what my other pursuit. Um, and, uh, I think homeschooling, it's not really homeschooling. It's a building family cohesion, as far as I'm concerned. And the learning comes out of whatever you have to teach. If you're a bad role model, your homeschooling is going to be, uh, you know, polluted by your, about your own bad behavior. Um, so I think that's sort of what it comes down to for me. 
you have to be aware, or it helps to be aware of who you are, what you're saying to people, why. And you certainly don't want to be abusive or uh, any of other long laundry list of bad parenting behaviors. And maybe it even helps you become a better parent by taking some responsibility. I'm not sure. I don't know. What do you think? I think that uh, homeschooling is definitely a mirror for whatever your own personal challenges can be because you are in it 24 seven. So you're, um, you know, I, I would imagine, although I haven't experienced this, you know, it's a little easier to be all cheerful and hear some milk and cookies when you didn't see someone for eight hours. Right. <laughs> but you're in the trenches together. Right. And so there's all their stuff and there's your stuff and you're trying to get some things done and get facilitate some learning and, you know, multiple, like I had four kids in six years. So I think that your character definitely gets worked on as a homeschooler for sure. Cause you see, you see yourself a bit more clearly, I think, than you might otherwise like your responses, for example, definitely you will find <laughs> that they need some, some work. And then you have to find out why are you responding that way? Are you just overtired, stressed out? Are you a perfectionist? Are you like, what is, what's going on? So, yeah, I think, I think parents learn and grow um, through homeschooling for sure. I think all parents do, but it's just like, it's just parenting on steroids. I, I think I have a podcast episode where sometimes we think that some of our challenges are homeschooling challenges but actually there it's more like parenting challenges it's just right it's just that we're um with homeschooling it's everything is magnified it's it's inescapable so it just seems like worse or more well i want to i want to say a funny story which distinguishes me from other parents but maybe is uh has something valuable in it um, with my younger son, who I said is 11. I didn't know his mother very well. Um, at some point she thought I was a teacher and asked me if she could be my student. And I said, I'm not interested in teaching. I'm interested in a family. You want to have a family? And she said, Sure. And uh, in my stupidity, my, probably my biggest life I mean, lesson. Naivete, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. You want to call it stupidity? stupidity? I don't know. If you heard the rest of the story, you might not be so Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the relationship didn't last very long, um, but we had a son. And uh, uh, what can I say about it? Well, we went in our different directions. I didn't think we would. I thought we could. So you see, I had this. I had this, I blame it on mountaineering where you get together with a bunch of people and you commit to each other and there's no backing out. You know, if, if a member of a mountaineering party suddenly decided I'm not going to be responsible, you know, you'd kill the guy, 
because he put everyone's life in danger. You'd certainly abandon the whole project immediately. And for some reason, that doesn't happen with marriage. Everybody gets away with a murder in marriage, um, or at least they can or try. Um, so this marriage didn't last long. Um, but happily, we both seem to be committed to our son. So it's like, you know, two entirely different planets orbiting around this central star, who's my son. So she is like an evangelical Christian, and I am whatever the opposite to that would be. I don't even know what the word is. Um, but I keep my mouth shut because it's not my business. Uh, we have separate social circles. We have separate cosmological beliefs. We have separate heroes. And she teaches him hers. And I try to teach him mine. And the two don't seem to get much in the way because, you know, religion is its own thing. And um, religion is not bad. I, I mean, I have plenty of complaints about it, but uh, it has, I would say, uh, more good people than bad people on balance. Although, you know, it depends what crowd you get involved with, of course. But uh, her crowd is okay. And my son is, you know, they read Bible stories or whatever. And, um, it, you know, makes the hair on my back of my neck go up, but I don't say anything. It's their thing, their time. And in the end, he'll be the judge. And whatever he judges is fine. It's his life too. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, tolerant of that. Uh, I mean, I would have my limits. If he acted like I acted when I was young, there would be a problem. But for some happy reason, none of my kids want to do the stupid shit that I do or did. Um, and that is a great relief to me. Because if my parents knew what I was doing when I was young, they would have dropped dead in fright because it was reckless. I mean, you know, mountaineering is reckless. Can't get away from it. Um, so we've sort of got two parents doing homeschooling. Um, and we've got two separate um, social scenes. Um, and I don't know how that's going to affect him, but we're both positive and supportive of him. And we have no marital life together in spite of the fact that we share a house. Um, and as I say, there's no fighting because we've gone past that. There's nothing left to fight about. Um, it's like two separate businesses, your laundry business and somebody else's, uh, you know, sand and gravel business. They just, you know, they operate out of the same lot. And uh, I do remember that I learned something important from my father's, you know, from being an assistant to my father. I don't exactly know if you can like commodify it and say, well, I learned to be responsible or I learned photography. No, I learned something more, uh, something personal about, you know, self esteem. So that's pretty much my focus is my son's self esteem. And it's hard to say what that really amounts to because on, from his point of view, it's mostly just having fun. 
Um, I've tried taking him to museums. I've tried punishing him by forcing him to go to IMAX movies with me, which is a kind of a joke because they're almost always fun, but he objects to them because he knows they're educational. And um, at least that was before COVID. Now they're not showing movies. Uh, although maybe they will again one day. Um, and like I say, he's 11. It's funny. I, I've been trying to move him up in levels of maturity, but the trouble is that a lot of things are not very mature. So um, if you try to find comedy, you'll get a lot of scatological sexual offense. You know, I think Eddie Murphy is tremendously funny, but my son, my son refuses to listen to him because there's too much swearing. And a lot of movies for adolescents are full of, you know, what amounts to perverted social behavior. Um, probably because kids who go to normal schools have to live with it, but he doesn't. So he's not interested in um, bullying or uh, the, you know, or, or many of the bad behaviors that seem to populate public schools. So what am I going to do? I found just last night, Jim, oh, I forget his name. He was just on a Netflix special, a comedian who's like family friendly. You know, no swearing, no sex jokes, nothing off color, um, not even nothing racial. And my son thinks he's pretty funny. And um, so that's that's part of homeschooling. Humor is a great way to to get into topics, Uh, you know, the jokes he misses and all that stuff. Um that some of which I explained to him. And then, you know, I hear myself explaining to him these, you know, serious things and, and he doesn't pay much attention, you know, like recycling or something like that. Um, you never know what he'll catch though. You don't. I, and, and you never know what seeds are planted. Don't know. So I'm just, you know, I'm just out there just sort of dancing around casting seeds and trying to talk and, be responsive and modeling and, to, and modeling lifelong learning right because learning doesn't stop when you receive a diploma or a degree <coughs> so well that's kind of hard to model i'm not sure if people understand what it is you're doing when you're learning it looks like work often you yeah know? Or, or having interests right and learning about what you're interested in right showing yeah showing interest but then unless you say what it is (coughs) how does somebody know so i try to say sometimes what it is i'm doing but most of it's too you know ill-formed to make a good presentation so um um and then you know like i say i'm i'm in private practice as a psychologist and i can't talk about those people's lives of course not. That's right. Um, but some of them are very much against what a psychologist is supposed to do, against what a therapist is supposed to do. I make some of those people my friends, you know, and then we have social lives together. And then, you know, and then you can't go back to being a a, a therapist because you've broken through the membrane of 
of partiality. You know? That's right. You, it, there are certain there are certain rules about clients and therapists. But you know, I've taken. That's how I've I've met people around here. Um, they've been my clients, and then they graduate. That may be a funny way of putting it. At least they graduate from my program, and then we share equally. Nice. So um, we've talked a little bit about it, and I'm enjoying this conversation immensely. I'm going to quote you to you here. You. Mm-hmm. You have written or said um, throughout our inner conversations, people who believe teaching can be done better at home are called homeschoolers. Those who think school is itself destructive are called unschoolers. And so would you consider yourself to be an unschooler then? It sounds like it by how you direct or don't direct your son's learning. Yeah. I think your next question is going to be at mentors. Yes, it is. So, so then you went on to say, I believe the culprit is the teacher. So I am anti-teacher. I endorse mentors, but most people don't know the difference. Most mentors are just teachers light. This is not what a mentor is. So um, I thought it would be fun in our conversation to unpack that quotation. Um, and maybe we could start by defining what a teacher is or isn't and what a mentor is or isn't. And I don't, it's not about haggling over semantics. It's more about getting to the heart of, of uh, your philosophy on educating, I guess. Um, what is a teacher or what isn't and what is a mentor or isn't a mentor? To me, a teacher is somebody who has something to teach. And that usually means they've been told they have something to teach or they've been employed to teach something. Um, It could be somebody who just feels they have to teach you something, but that's not really what a teacher is. Teacher is for most of us, a professional whose job it is to convey material. So I am against that for the reason that if the material isn't relevant, it is both uninteresting to the uh, receiver. It is, um, it is disrespectful to insist that they prioritize what you think is important over what they think is important, you know, in, in a non-democratic fashion, you know, you're not, you're not compromising here. A teacher doesn't compromise most. I mean, like I said, I know knew John Gatto and I knew some other teachers who teach in very different way. You know, one of John's stories is that he took his students out into New Jersey and said, there you go. He dropped them on the street and said, make your way home. And uh, that's not exactly teaching in the normal frame of things. Um, so it, it, if that defines a teacher and it defines pretty well 99% of my grade school experience, um, there were some teachers, I can only think of one, who 
broke out of that mold, I had a biology, a biology teacher in 10th grade who got me a fetal pig so that I could dissect it at home. And in that, he wasn't a teacher. He had nothing to do with the fetal pig except getting it for me. He didn't teach me about it. You know, it was nothing I did with him. Um, he, he was a facilitator. He provided resources. And in general, I've had more interest with librarians who I find are often more open to what you're interested in. Um, and a mentor is uh, another beast. Um, in general, if I would define a mentor, it would be somebody not just, I would avoid the word teaching because I'm trying to distinguish that. And I would say it's somebody who has a need for a collaborative relationship. And it may not be that collaborative. It might just be that they're interested in seeing what you can do, but they're generally interested in seeing what you can do. Um, and there's an expectation that you'll meet a serious need which is, in my experience, something they participate in. So I've had mountaineering mentors who expected me to follow them. And I've had scientific mentors who expected me to keep up with them. They didn't tell me how to do it. They weren't going to spend a minute telling me how to do it. They were fully involved in their own project, um, plowing their own way forward. And they not only expected me to uh, keep up with where they were, but to do it at a pace that wouldn't slow them down. Um, and, and I you think have no choice then but to rise to the occasion. You do, and in a number of cases, you fail, and that's fine. And they're tolerant of that. I mean, that's what distinguishes them from an employer, perhaps, is that they understand that you're learning and they expect you to accelerate and they expect you to perform, you know, in, in this sort of unspoken contract. Um, and they will give you some guidance or resources and they will share mature meaning. Um, and uh, breadth of relevance. Um, and they don't have to do much. Like I said, when I went to, to Princeton when I was 16 to talk to a physicist who turned out to be a great, you know, famous physicist, all he did was give me his time for those two days. But he changed the way I looked at myself so that I was no longer, you know, a student competing for a grade. And he took that all for granted. He said, you know, he didn't say, but he made me feel that I could do anything I wanted to do, you know, subject to the provisos of nature and the fact that not everybody can do what you want to do. You, you're not necessarily going to succeed. That's, that, I think, is a big, important thing. A student is given, a student and a teacher, is given material that they're expected to process at a certain rate or to a certain degree. And then they're often graded either explicitly or not explicitly. 
on their performance. Whereas in a mentorship relationship, you don't know how far you can go. Or you also don't know how badly you can fail. And both of those are okay. And you may not even know what direction you're going to go when you hit a block. Whereas as a student, you know, it's chapter six follows chapter five. Um, But in real research and in mentorship, uh, you're on the edge of learning. Often no one has gone there before, which makes it, of course, interesting, even, even if it's not interesting to you. I mean, I've had people say, the best experience I had in school was in geography of which I had no interest at all because I was open to possibilities that were important to me and I could run with them so that a mentor is a funny, a funny person. They could be um, dependent on you for producing something like the guy who hired me to be a graduate student when I hadn't, even graduated from college, um, you know, and it, and he he fully expected that I would get stuck on things, and he knew I would need resources, <coughs> and he had those resources to give. Um, so now, I've gone back to school. I'm now a student in a, a counseling degree program. And it's like, uh, it's just as bad as high school. You know, uh, I, 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 I struggle to say anything good about my teachers. Uh, it's a means to an end, though, for you. Uh, it's a means to an end. And it, it's interesting. In fact, it's very important to understand why other people don't think creatively. You know, we say that you're not taught to think creatively, but to actually see how you're not taught to think creatively is really important because that's it's that's the dam that's holding everybody back. And some of it is knowledge and some of it is courage and some of it is social behavior. Um, You know, if if you're going to be a creative person, You've got to be ready to say, I think differently than you do. And that used and, to be encouraged in the liberal arts, but now I'm afraid it is like the opposite. Well, I think you can, you can keep going above this and say, why? Why was it encouraged? Why is it not encouraged? And, you know, the reasons are, well, they wanted it one way and it was rewarded. You know, doctors made money, so everyone wanted to be a doctor. Now, in my town of Victoria, doctors don't make money. And there are no doctors. People can't get doctors. In fact, I talked to my doctor today. He said, I'm closing in February. I can't tell you where to go. Good luck. Um, So times change. And schooling doesn't change. Schooling, by its nature and its sort of lumbering structure, is uh, 20 to 40 years behind in most cases, though, not in, not in all cases. Um, uh, but it depends on your location, your subject, and so forth. Uh, you know, like STEM courses tend to be uh, more advanced and liberal 
if that's the right word, um, then uh, perhaps other, you know, you're a good person to talk to because you've got these history courses. History tends not to change much according to some people, and it changes a lot according to other people. Um, Depends on who's telling the story. That's right. And which story they're telling. Um, Anyway, I have these books. So the first book I wrote was me interviewing 35 people without interpreting what they were saying. Young people, uh, mentally challenged people, um, physically challenged people, uh, highly celebrated people, um, and highly uh, questionable people. And I found them all, you know, once you get their trust, you get the full um, complexity of life. And I just found that uh, inspiring. But it made for, I think most people find it a difficult book to read because everybody's going in a different direction and nobody's concluding anything. So then I wrote these two other books called Becoming Super Genius, where I tried to take out the lesson of all those people and ended up with 350 lessons. And I divided it into how you deal with the outer world and how you deal with yourself. So that's the book I'm offering, you know, listeners here, uh, a free digital copy. And you can, you can, we'll put a link. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode, both on, um, the episode show notes for the podcast providers, and then also on our website blog page for um, yeah. this episode as well. I actually read those books. So people who want to listen to them could uh, even do that. Anyway. so nice. that, I mean, our still... listeners are auditory people. They're listening right. to podcasts. So that might be a great way. Right. That I think you have to buy because audible actually doesn't even give you the files. It's all sort of, in a proprietary format, but it's there. Um, So that's, that's pretty much my story right now. You know, I'm going off in some, some strange and, and uh, risky intellectual territory, but I do hope to become a more regular therapist. I find it the most rewarding and very easy in a sense. All you have to do is be honest and open and careful. And you're pretty much a valuable resource. For sure. It's greatly needed in this world, especially these days, I find. Yeah. Yeah. So right. what else? Any well, more? I feel like we've covered a lot and it's been a great and very interesting conversation. So thank you, Lincoln. I'm just going to mention You're- what your website is now and I'll link to that as well in the show notes um, in the blog episode for this particular podcast episode. So you can find Lincoln at mindstrengthbalance.com and you can find out more about him and what he's up to on there. And I think this has been a really good conversation just about homeschooling and unschooling and mentoring and teaching and just what learning is. It's been really great. So thanks for joining me, Lincoln. Glad I could be helpful. And I hope you make a full recovery. Uh, That too. From your COVID. Thank you. Okay, Rowan, I hope we speak to each other again. I hope we cross paths. Thank you. And also, so thank you so much and happy homeschooling or unschooling or facilitating learning, Canada.
Thank you so much for listening. You can find helpful links and show notes for this episode at our website, canadahomeschools.com. Please share this podcast with your friends and leave a rating and positive review on your podcast provider. This will help others find their dose of inspiration and encouragement. Happy homeschooling, Canada! Hee <laughs> hee!